Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I have to tell you something, people. We're recording this the day before St. Patty's. And it just cracks me up that I usually make corned beef and cabbage on St. Patty's Day. But Joanne does not. Joanne does the whole Lent thing. So she's like, I can't eat meat tomorrow. And it got me thinking that a lot of restaurants are going to have a lot of corned beef and cabbage left over because... A lot of people do not eat meat on Friday. So I think this will be one of the first St. Patty's Day that like a McDonald's filetto fish sells more than the corned beef and cabbage. So now I have to make it on Saturday. But you always get a good deal, so I'm not going to complain. Anyway, we have a great show today. I'm very excited about this. Uh, my guest is a, uh, he's, he's, pretty, he's, a, he's a South Jersey legend. He's, a, he's a, a very prolific writer, comic. He's done a lot of stuff. And back when I was just a little Steve Cooper... Getting into the comedy scene, I played the Cherry Hill Comedy Cabaret out there at the uh, Hyatt. Now it's changed and it's been different clubs. And he actually interviewed me for the Courier Post. And my mom sent me a, a, a scrapbook and I found that article. And I had hair, which is always a wonderful thing. And my guest is Chuck Darrow. How you doing, Chuck? Uh, I'm swinging, baby. Thanks so much. I am... Uh... I'm flattered to have been asked to do this today. Well, it, it's funny. It's it's funny because you're you know, as I was going through your bio, we'll talk about later. The people you've interviewed, one of them was Donald Trump, which is such a big thing now in the news. But I, before we start the interview, what year did you what year did you interview Donald Trump? Well, I actually interviewed him a number of times. I mean, not not you know, dozens, but probably I'd say somewhere six, eight times, ten times. Uh, over the course of maybe hmm, 10 years or so between, I guess, the late 80s, 87, 88. Uh, actually, the last time I did it was, I believe, in 2008 or 2009 uh, for the Philly Daily News. But uh, it was more than once, and I spent uh, a few hours in his company just one-on-one uh, with him. Did, did you ever think <laughs> that he would become no. our president? I mean... But- you know what's interesting? Um, back in, I believe it would have been 87 or 88, probably 87. One day, I, I it was a last-minute thing. I went into work at your post, and um, I was I was told or found out that Donald Trump was holding a press conference at the old bookbinders in the 2nd and Walnut in Philly. And um, he had that morning, he, he had placed an ad in, like, the New York Times and the uh, Washington Post, and had, I don't remember what the ad was about, but it was had something to do, I believe, with trade, with some some trade uh, deal or, or treaty that was in the works, and he was against it. And people asked him, he said, you know, this certainly sounds like you're planning to run for president, but the idea of Donald Trump being president, <laughs> of, who, who saw it coming? No, nobody can say they actually, especially when he started his campaign, by you know, labeling an entire nation of people as rapists and drug dealers, right? I mean, that is not way traditionally to kick off a campaign. And you know, no, I'm I'm not that smart. <laughs> it's just funny. Now, now, you, when did your love for writing and entertainment start? I mean, as a kid, did you write about entertainment? Did you watch TV? I mean, it seems no. like well, I, I mean, yes, I, I, I was a kid. I watched you know plenty of TV, and then. Once, I guess, I actually got into music when I was six. The first record I bought, 45, Little Eva doing Locomotion. But it was really, in, okay, so there's there's a couple of answers to that. Whereas in terms of, of writing, and I'll get back to the entertainment part, and I'm actually I'm part of it right now, but in, in ninth, I must have been about eight years old, and I'll remember this as if it happened last Friday. 
I was driving, sitting in the back seat of my parents' car. We were driving into Center City, Philadelphia, down the, uh, the people listening around the country may not know Philly, but they know the scene from the Art Museum steps in Rocky, the uh, Benjamin Franklin Parkway. So I can picture vividly drive, sitting in the back seat. We're driving into Center City, down the parkway, and there was a gentleman on uh, red local radio for years in Philly, you may remember, Dr. Charles Lee. Okay. And he was a very erudite and uh, sort of uh, serious, dapper-looking gentleman, white hair and stentorian tones. And he reviewed uh, movies and theater. And he was doing a movie. He came on the radio doing a movie review. And I'll never forget, my mother turned around and said to me, gee, Chuck, how would you like to have that job? And I said, what job? And she said, essentially, the guy on the radio gets paid to go to movies. And that's sort of, it's, you know, I kind of filed that away. A couple of years later, I, I um, had a burst appendix and had some post-operative uh, uh, surgical issues that kept me in the hospital for about three weeks. And I got a lot of presents, one of which was a young adult biography, a kid's biography of JFK. And once one paragraph or a couple sentences always kind of, again, resonated with me how when he, I mean, 46, before he decided to run for Congress, for late 45, before, or Navy, I guess he was in, I'm sorry. Uh, he, before he decided to run for Congress in Boston, his father asked his friend, William Randolph Hearst, to hire JFK as a reporter, and, the, and Hearst sent him to San Francisco to cover, San Francisco, to cover the uh, first meetings of what would ultimately lead to the founding of the United Nations. And there was a sentence or two in this book that I read when I was 10 years old, and it said something like Kennedy discovered that a press card sort of was, you know, gave him access to the world's events, the famous people and history as it was happening. So those two things kind of, again, I, I wasn't really conscious, didn't think about them a lot, but I know that they stayed with me. As I got older, I realized that the only real talent that I had was writing. I was always very good in getting in creative writing in school. And I was not very good in math or science, but English, spelling, anything to do with, with the written word, and especially writing itself, I, I seemed to have some degree of talent for. And then what really changed in the late 60s, I'm sorry for the long-winded answer, but in the late 60s, uh, early, very early 70s, I, got, I became a major music fan. I mean, just like ate, lived, and breathed, and slept rock music, especially you know, thanks to WMMR and underground rock, as they called it back then. And so I became a total music nut, and that was at this, uh, right around that same exact time, the Philadelphia, there were three at the time, the Philadelphia newspapers all hired their first full-time music critics. And I would read these reviews of you know, concerts and albums and think to myself, wait a second, let me, let me get this straight. These guys get, and they were, all, all, were at the time all men, these guys get free concert tickets, they get free albums, and they get paid to get to go to concerts and listen to albums. You know what? That could work. And that sort of became my goal, um, you know, from that point on. And, you know, timing is always crucial in anybody's life, whether professionally or personally. And uh, I had known I was going to go to Temple and work for the Temple newspaper, by the time I was a kid, you know, I mean, eight, nine years old, because my father was a sports editor of the Temple News back in the 30s, and um, he did not stay in journalism. But he got to cover the first NI, uh, Sugar Bowl in New Orleans and the first NIT tournament, which was the precursor. It was the NCAA tournament of its time, the Temple won in 19, I think, 38. 
So I heard all these stories growing up working for the Temple News, and I wanted to be a music writer. I went up, this is the first day I was able to, I went up to the school newspaper offices, asked for the entertainment editor, introduced myself. I had never written anything in my life, really, nothing published. And I said, I want to cover, I want to be, you know, the music writer. And amazingly, their music writer, the Temple News music writer, had graduated the previous June. This was, uh, Jan uh, sorry, September of 74. And he said, sure, you're the music columnist. And uh, people would ask him, like other people at the paper, other editors would ask him, how in the world can you give a freshman who's never been published his own column? Have I picture the whole nine yards? And his answer was the greatest answer of all. He was kind of a, he was a great guy, but he was sort of a, a 70s stoner type. And he just said, hey, man, 22 inches a week is 22 inches a week, meaning it's column inches, meaning that was 22-inch hole of copy that I, he didn't have to worry about filling every Thursday because I would do it for him. And that was how I got started. <laughs> That's crazy. That's so funny. And, you know, the, the music and the music columnist, and it's just your love for music. I mean, it's funny because I, I would go back and forth with sports and a love for music. And I'm still, you know, and growing up in Philadelphia, the one thing that we were lucky about was growing up, I grew up in South Jersey, but if you loved music, you had the spectrum and you had the man and you had the tower and you could always see bands and you're right MMR was you know they played some great tunes they they created my entire consciousness about I mean again I was listening to Top 40 and the uh, Beatles and the Monkees and the Beach Boys and Supremes and so on and so forth but you know when I heard when I first heard Jethro Tull or when I first heard Santana or when I first heard uh, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, yeah, and just or Genesis. I mean, it, it just, it, I couldn't believe that music, rock musicians, rock music instruments could make sounds like those, and it just, it changed my life, literally, and I was, sure, MMR, Bowie, I mean, Ziggy Stardust remains my Desert Island album, where did I hear it first? Yeah, yeah I still, it's crazy. So now, now you, you, you got this column with Temple, and now, yeah. at, after your freshman year, are you saying, okay, my life I'm going to follow when I get out of college, and I'm going to be a columnist. And, and what avenue do you take to make that happen? Well, I mean, I, I was fortunate because in most, or in a lot of cases, kind of traditionally, to write, if you want to write for a big city newspaper or even in a major market, as I did for 23 years at the Courier Post in Cherry Hill, your uh, native land, your homeland, and before I went out for seven years at the Philly Daily News, you usually have to start small out of town. And, you know, you go to a small paper, I mean, if you look at the ads online today, the journalism websites, I mean, places, towns I never heard of, Nebraska and Iowa and Montana, I mean, really the bottom rung. Um, I essentially, I left, I left Temple at the end of 77. I was editor-in-chief of the Temple News and figured it was time to go on and make my way way. Uh, I first got my first writing job outside of school was just as a free, regular freelancer writing news stories for an incredibly small paper in Hatboro, PA, uh, called Today's Spirit, Hatboro being in, in Montgomery County, outside northwest of Philly, north of Philly. And um, I started out just covering, I mean, like police beat and school board meetings, I mean, just the, the worst stuff I never really wanted to, but it's called paying dues. And what's, what's really interesting is when I first went to interview for the freelancer's job there, the uh, managing editor, who was the guy who ran the paper day to day, when I said I'd like to write entertainment, he says, you know, people don't buy our paper. They don't read us for that. They have the Philly papers. They don't read us 
biased to read about entertainment, just basically local news and, and high school sports. And um, a year or so later, that was 78, 79, and then in very early 1980, a friend of mine from the Temple News was the entertainment editor at the late lamented Philadelphia Journal, which was a classic tabloid newspaper. And she called me one day and she said, we just fired our music writer. How would you like to, I think you, should, you, should, you could do it. Why don't you, you know, send me your resume ASAP. So my first real, I wasn't even 24 years old, my first real full-time paying gig was as a columnist in, on, you know, in Philadelphia. What would, daily paper in Philadelphia. What would you write about for that column? Would you write about album reviews? Would you write about concerts? Would you write about yeah. gossip? Well, I mean, that first column, the first column was strictly a um, a music column, and I did both. I, I would, I would, uh, you know, I would do interviews, and I would, I would do concert reviews, and and I would, uh, you know, preview shows sometimes without interviews. I, I found one in a, in a scrapbook that I previewed. I didn't get an interview, probably because I didn't even bother asking. But uh, an unknown band from Dublin, Ireland called U2 were playing the Bijou Cafe, about a 150, 200-seat nightclub at Broad and Lombard Street in Center City. And I led a column saying, hey, you know what? This is a hot new band. You should go. That kind of thing. But it was, yeah, it was all about, and local music, local bands, the the local bands at the time as well. Uh, I think Baru Review may have been one of the bands I wrote about back then. Uh, Certainly Ken Queter, who's still not (laughs) slugging her away. Uh, locally, um, and what happened was though, and even before in college, the whole the, this I, I didn't stay strictly music because I did like show business in general. I did like movies and and theater, and so I kind of started to branch out. And I, I've always done more than one, pretty much a beat at a time. I mean, I've I've been a I, I pride myself on saying, and I mean, there's no real empirical proof, but common sense suggest that of in the history of Philadelphia journalism, Philadelphia area, I have, I'm the only person who have ever covered every single, as a beat. Um, I've been a movie writer, you know, columnist, critic, a theater columnist, critic, uh, TV, TV, radio. I did a radio column at the Journal and at the Courier Post. Uh, nightclubs, I, casinos, uh, that was kind of my brand in the uh, 90s and 2000s. I was uh, pretty much considered the leading casino writer. On the East Coast, I suppose, Casino Entertainment, or at least one of there's a gentleman in uh, Atlantic City who did a pretty good job too. So I'll give him that. But outside of Atlantic City, so because I, I just I, I can never understand how people could just be a movie critic or a music critic. I would go nuts because it's really kind of boring, especially you know after decades. Well, that, that's funny to say that because that's like me and, and my show. You know, it started at comics, and then there's so many people you want to interview. And like lately, I have had this string of musicians. It's just I haven't yeah. been able to book any actors. But I'm the same way. It's like you know, if you just constantly keep interviewing actors, they're great. They have stories, but you want to sit there and go, "I'm going to interview someone else." Like you, you're a writer. You know, I've had Bob Mara who wrote uh, the Replacements book. You know, he he's a writer. Right. You know, and you want to mix it up like because you're right it gets stagnant because you're like there's so much information out there that it's that especially now that you would i mean i'm sure you would go crazy just writing movies when i I mean uh well look at television i mean i was a tv critic when there were three networks back in the 80s you know mid to late 80s uh so there were three networks and pbs and now look at how much i was just thinking about this today reading a review TV review locally, and, and it's like, how, how do you watch, you know, what was it, something like 573 scripted series that were produced, you know, in the past year? 
I mean, it's I just I don't know how you do how you even you know want to do that. I just get so immersed in in one area. I mean, I, I'm just I'm a, I'm a, I'm ADHD because we all know what that stands for: attention deficit hate donuts. Right. Uh, so so um, you know I I need the sort of the constant uh, back and forth. I can't stay focused on one thing. Now I got a question for you because you know you're writing the music, so. you're doing stuff. Otherwise, you're like, pretty dull. <laughs> no, you know, I'm, I, we'll just fudge it. Now, how? Okay, how did you end up being road manager for the late great Robert Hazard? Um, okay, that's a good question. Um, in 1976, actually, it was just about 41 years ago. Um, there was no when I was when I was writing music at the at Temple News when I got there first couple of years. There were no. It was a time when the, when there was no mu- really on campus music. Any any time anybody any stu- Temple student wanted to hear live music or see live music, they had to go off campus. Not that that many lived there. Not like today when they have like ten thousand or fifteen thousand. There was like two thousand on you know residents, and they had to leave campus to go avail themselves of any live music in Philly. And uh, a guy who I knew decided he was going to, to start promoting concerts in Philly, or in Temple, rather. And the first one was Ken Queter and the Secret Kids. And as the music columnist for the, for the news, he thought it would be a good idea to give you know, the, him some credibility if I emceed the show. I had heard, I'd only known Kenny because of, he had some pretty provocative posters that he had planted around town, but you know, he was still just sort of beginning his, his career. And I went to see him, and I was totally blown away, and I wrote a column that, that both he and his manager, a gentleman named Bill Ibe, E-I-B, read. And a couple of days after, the, or the day that the column ran, another, a mutual friend of ours, a great rock photographer named Phil Sakala, fortunately he's been dead for too many years, uh, he was really the guy who discussed, as an aside, Phil Sokola, everybody always talks about MMR and Ed Shockey and how they discovered Springsteen. Well, well, it was Phil who, who turned Ed Shockey and the other disc jockeys on to, to Springsteen before they knew who he was. Springsteen used to sleep on his, when he would play the main point outside Philly, they, Bruce would sleep at Phil's, on Phil's couch. Anyway, so I get a call from Phil and he says, Bill Ive would like, like you to call him. And I said, who's Bill Ive? And he said, he's Ken Queter's manager. So I called Bill. Uh, we, we, you know, developed a, a pretty good friendship. And then he got involved with Robert, I guess, in late 80, early 81. And then in the summer of 82, Robert was really making noise. He put out this five-song EP, you may remember. I had it. With, yeah, there you go. And it was, you know, I mean, it was selling 10,000 copies a week in the Philly region alone. I mean, it was just huge and unprecedented and probably still is. And um, one day Bill called me and said, you know, he asked me to, to have lunch with him, which I gladly accepted the invitation. And he said, look, things are really starting to explode uh, with Robert and I can't, I'm, I'm too busy, you know, t- trying to do, you know, uh, deal with the record companies because all the big labels wanted wanted to sign him and so on. He goes, I need somebody at the gigs, you know, who can help me and help out and take care of Robert and make sure everything goes smoothly. You know, and Robert would like somebody, you know, not only that he knows, but somebody he genuinely likes, and we think you're the guy. And um, I thought that was, it was just unbelievable because, you know, for the previous eight years, I started writing in 74, I had gone to a million concerts and spent a good amount of time backstage, and at every concert I ever went to, and again, this was all a male the province at the time, but at every gig, there was one guy walking around. He wore they, he always wore the same thing: jeans, a t-shirt, 
some sort of t-shirt, a leather jacket, and a leather bag, shoulder bag, and a laminated all-access pass. And this guy would walk around with the, just the vibe was, you know what? You're sure people are coming to see Rod Stewart, or they're coming to see Elton John, or coming to see whoever. But you know what? This is my gig, and if I don't do what I'm supposed to do, th- those guys can't do what they're supposed to do. And I always thought, gee, that looks like a pretty interesting thing to do for a pretty cool gig. And I, you know, for that year, I got to '82 into '83, mid '83. I got to to be that guy. So that's that's how that happened. Now, did you enjoy? And I had it? written about Robert before when I was still at the Journal. I had written about Robert fairly regularly. Now, because he was you know starting to explode on the scene. Now the Journal folded. And then you end up going to the Carrier Post. When you well, I, I, I actually did. I, I first, I first, first, I, 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 I was a wholesale, I wholesaled rock and roll buttons <laughs> for my friend Phil Sacola had a company called Button Master, where he sold uh, rock rock buttons, you know, rock band buttons to record stores and head shops and such around the country. Uh, and then let's see, uh, and then I guess yeah, and then. Uh, I, I, I got to work with Robert, and then Robert went to L.A. in the winter, or I guess late seventy, late eighty three, mid eighty three. Need a road manager because he wasn't on the road. Uh, I got married, and I had to get a real job, so I did PR. I was a PR director for a Philly ad agency for a year and a half, and then in June of eighty five, the opportunity to go back to writing full time at the Courier Post presented itself. So basically, I really didn't do much writing. Between December of eighty one or January of eighty two and uh, June of eighty five, I really did no writing at all. Did you think when you joined the Carrier Post it would be such a long uh, career? You were there for twenty three years, and did you ever think when you joined that how many people you would actually get a chance to interview? And now, didn't you didn't you cover Live Aid? Yeah, I, absolutely. I covered Live Aid from the moment the the announcement was there. The first story I wrote appeared the day of the announcement. The story was, because we heard the day before that there was going to be a press conference the next day announcing this giant concert. Absolutely. Um, well, again, I, by, by the time, by 1985, I had already, I mean, I, I had interviewed a good number of celebrities already for the Temple, for the temple News and I, you know, and I did a couple of other local publications. Wrote some. Remember the old Drummer, the original alternative weekly in Philadelphia. I'd done some writing for them. So uh, talking to celebrities was not necessarily. Um, and then oh, the Journal. I mean, that's what I mean. The Journal. I, I, I the way I said, I had uh, was it breakfast with? Let's see, breakfast with Paul Newman and lunch with Sophia Loren and dinner with uh, I forget who the dinner was with. Some whatever, but. Uh, so by the time I got to the Courier, interviewing celebrities was sort of just part of the gig. Who were some of your favorite celebrities you've interviewed? I mean, when you think well, back, and just and or and also some that were somewhat challenging. I mean, it sounds weird, but when I first I used to record my show in a studio, and I remember, you know, I'm 52, and we all watched One on One with Robbie Benson, and I remember one of my first big guests was Robbie Benson. And he comes in and he still looks like Robbie Benson, but he's got long hair and a beard. And it was like, it was weird because you're sitting there going, wow. And it was such a great interview. It was so nice. But it was like, I'm sitting there going, wow, I'm sitting across from Robbie Benson. You're like, every guy wanted to be him and every girl loved him. Who are some right. of the people that you interviewed? Well, that- me, before I, I answer the question, let me tell you, I, I had one uh, interaction with Robbie Benson. He disappointed me greatly. Uh, we were at, I was in New York 
on what they call, I don't know if they still do them, but I assume they do film junkets where writers from around the country would gather in a single spot and see a, a movie about to be released and then interview the principals, not only just the stars, but the writers, the producers, directors, whoever. Uh, and I forget what Robbie Benson movie it was now. Damn. <laughs> I can't, wish I could remember. But I was in New York and I, Robbie, ben, I was, I walked out like of the room where I was interviewing someone else. And Robbie Benson was there strumming a guitar, or or I heard through his door, and he, like I heard him strumming a guitar. And then he walked down the hallway, and he just happened, I happened to be there. And I said, "Hey, how you doing?" I, you know, introduced myself. I said, "Hey, what kind of it sounded great? What kind of guitar do you play?" And he couldn't tell me the name, the, the the brand name, you know, the make of guitar. And I thought, what kind of musician doesn't know what kind of guitar he's playing? <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> Yeah, so so not not a big fan of Robbie Benson as a musician myself. You know, when you live for for the brands, you talk you know you talk constantly about you know Fenders and Gibsons and so on. Um, okay, um, this is going to surprise a lot of people, and I always when, when I when now when I have to answer this question, I always preface it by saying this does not in any way, shape, or form constitute any sort of political endorsement. But Donald Trump is pretty much the nicest celebrity I ever. Um, got to you know to work with and meet. Uh, as, as I said earlier, I interviewed him a number you know several times, four, five, six, seven times over the course of maybe eight, ten years. Uh, and he was always never anything less than gracious and welcoming, and most importantly to me, accommodating. Um, the, the example I always use is that when in the you know in the run up when when Trump Taj Mahal the casino in Atlantic City opened it opened it was huge news it was a game changer in the casino industry it was really one of the first mega at the time it was the largest casino ever ever built and it was the, a, a huge story not just in you know entertainment or in locally but nationally and internationally and everybody of course wanted to interview trump as i did and i had arranged through whoever it was the people in atlantic city to do an interview with donald but we had never set up an actual time when we were going to do it and i was expecting to do it in person and one day I'm at my desk at the Courier Post, and the phone rings, and and I said, "Hold on, you know." And, and a woman says, "This is a, it was his a, a time. She's gone now, but his assistant, uh, executive assistant, because you know I have Mr. Trump on the phone for you." And I said, uh, "Oh, okay." And she punched me through to Donald. Like Donald said, "Hey, how you doing?" And I said, "Great, thanks. I appreciate you taking time, but you know, I, a, I wasn't, I didn't ever was told you were going to call now, but I mean, if you." If, we have to do it now. This is great. I know what I want to ask you, but I was really hoping to do it in person. And he said, oh, okay, you'd rather do it in person? This was like a Tuesday or Monday or something. And I said, sure. And he said, well, I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to be in Atlantic City in my, uh, on Friday, so why don't you just meet me at my office at 11 or whatever time. I believe it was either 10 or 11 a.m., his office at the old Trump Castle, which is now the Golden Nugget. And it was just he and I sitting there for an hour or better. And I, I remember exactly the day it was, not the date, but the day, because it was the day the New York Post broke the story about him and Marla Maples with the headline, Best Sex I Ever Had, okay. which was her quote <laughs> about him. That's funny. So, so it was a finish. So people always say to me, well, you know, as, as uh, a good friend of mine said last night, oh, he was, we were talking about it, and he said, oh, he just, you know, he's so naive, he was just playing you for the publicity. And my point is, look, anyone I ever interviewed, any celebrity, only talked to me, not because I'm so charming and brilliant and, and handsome, simply because they wanted free publicity. But Donald was always went well above and beyond what he needed as an interview subject to do. 
and that was just one example. Uh, so I will go. I will go with Donald. He sent me a couple of un, unsolicited. I'm not asking for any kind of autograph for anything, but I have a, a couple of thank you notes signed by him. One of which was typed that he signed, and another one which he personally hand wrote. Wow. So you know, and, and most celebrities don't never did that. A few. I mean, Paul Aka has always been nice to to acknowledge when you've interviewed him, but but and that, that's pretty much it. Now to answer your other question, the uh, two other celebrities come to mind. One is really maybe in, in some ways my favorite of all time. That was Mary Martin, okay, who played Peter Pan. And at the time I was at the Journal, I was maybe twenty-five. She was maybe sixty-five, um, and I was so bummed. I didn't want to leave her ever. I mean, I wanted to spend my life with this woman. She was so warm and so much fun to be with, and vivacious and so interested in my life. It was like, but I was too old for her to adopt and too young for her to marry. So. And then a special category goes to my dear, dear friend, Joe Piscopo, who to this day I count as one of my, uh, my best friends. Now, Piscopo, I heard you, you've uh, co um, collaborated on a bunch of stuff with him. How did your relationship start with Joe? Uh, another story, I'm afraid. So I was, uh, before I, I didn't meet him until 1985 when I was at The Courier. And in, but I, I used to watch him on Saturday Night He was already gone from SNL. But I used to watch him on Saturday Night Live in the 80s, early 80s, and think to myself, this guy is the most talented guy in show business. I just always thought he was such a major talent and so versatile. And in 1985, he booked a gig at Caesars in Atlantic City, and the publicist called me one day. I just really just started full-time. I'd been freelancing for The Courier, doing some music and other entertainment, but I just started full-time in June of 85. And she said, hey, he called me one day, he said, I, we have Joe Piscopo coming in at the end of the month, he's, but he's coming to Philly next Tuesday or whatever day to do some interviews. You want to have lunch with him? Oh, my God. Of course. I'm the biggest Joe Piscopo fan. So we had lunch in town, in, in Center City, and, I, I mean, it was fine. We kind of bonded because I knew the only thing I knew about him other than Saturday Night Live stuff really was that he's a Honeymooners fanatic, as I am. And if you're a Honeymooners fan, you know that that's sort of your fraternity. And you change, you know, you always do the lines back and forth from the shows, from the episodes. But there was no, again, and, and, and so between 1985 and 1990, he played in Atlantic City a couple times. He played the old Valley Forge Music Fair once. He um, uh, he also did a, an HBO special, all of which I interviewed him. I got him on the phone. And every time we would do the interview, he would say, hey, you coming to the show? I'd say, of course. He would say, well, make sure you come back after the show. And I would. My wife and I would show up after, you know, in the dressing room, and it was nice. I mean, he was nice. Hey, how you doing? But it was very superficial. There was nothing really there. And then in 1990, he books uh, an HBO special, and he starts to write new material, and he wants to try it out in front of a live audience. And he books the gig. Remember the old Woodbine Inn in, um, in Palmyra? Oh, yeah, right on 73. 73, right. So he plays, of all places to play, he chooses there. So, of course, that's the backyard of the Courier Post. Of course, I'm going to do an interview, a preview of the show. And we do the interview, and he says, you know, uh, again, he says, hey, you coming to the show? Of course. Make sure you stop back after the show and say hello, which I did. And for whatever reason, instead of just being the cursory, hey, how you doing, good show, you know, like that, we actually sat down and had a talk for about the better part of an hour about his career, about show business. Um, and, and I started to say, hey, you know, do you ever consider doing this character or doing that? And we just talked as like, real people, not reporter to celebrity. As we were leaving, as we're saying goodbye, he says, can I ask you a favor? And I said, sure. This was April 1990. 
Uh, and he said, ABC sent me a script for a pilot, and I just don't know whether or not I should do it. If I send it to you, will you read it and tell me what you think? Oh, my God. The, the guy who I think is the most talented guy in show business is asking me advice? Sure. So uh, he sent it to me. I read it. I called him back. He said, what you think? And I said, I think you could kill this. You absolutely could kill this. But so could Tony Danza. And he said, what do you mean? I said, I said, look, you can do this. This is this. This is it'd be nothing for you. But I think that you're such a unique talent that you should, if you're doing a TV series, it should be something that really plays to those unique talents as, you know, as a he's a great musician, as, as a mimic, whatever. Uh, and I, and I just think, you know, yeah, you could kill it, but so could Tony Danza. And then he said, and he ultimately passed on this, on the pilot, and there was a punchline. Uh, but he said on the phone, he said, "Listen, I'm going to go back out on the road, and I'd like to, you know, I'm thinking of writing some new stuff. How about if you and I maybe write, try to write some stuff together?" And that's really how it started. Now the punchline to the dance story is, the show was called. You can look it up, Google it, as as the youth say. <laughs> and um, Tony Danza, it was, it was called Hudson Street, and Tony Danza wound up doing it. That's funny. Well, you know what's funny about Piscopo and the the fact that you talk about Atlantic City and him. I went to Stockton State, uh, Richard Stockton okay. University now, and I remember it must have been in eighty four or eighty five around that time. My girl, old girlfriend in college, was at one of the rest. They, they stopped real quick to use a bathroom, coming back from somewhere at the rest stop, like right they used to the rest stops right near Atlantic City or off the right. expressway. Sure. And she ran into Joe Piscopo, yeah. and she's like, "Oh my God, we're big fans!" And he comped her and her friend to bring and bring two people. That's, so yeah. I ended up going, and I was, I was blown away because I, it's like you know, I just knew him from SNL. But when he does his drum stuff and all this other exactly. stuff, right. I was blown away. Like I was sitting there because you know I wasn't really. I seen a few comics on my campus, but his wasn't even like a. It's like when I saw Martin Short. You know, it was right. one of those things. Same kind of, same kind of act. Yeah, yeah. and, and I—they're and they're was... not standoffs. So people think that Piscopo goes out and says, you know, gee, you, I hate that airline food or whatever. And no, he does not do that at all. Yeah, it was—it was just amazing. I mean, that's funny. So, so yeah. uh, have you done anything with him lately, or do you keep in touch with him, or? I, I, uh, you know, he—I don't. You may or may not know out there that he is seriously considering, not as a joke, not as a goof, but he is seriously considering running for governor of New Jersey this year. So he and I uh, communicate, you know, maybe once a week or so about that. Uh, you know, we, we sort of just uh, more text because Joe, Joe does a uh, he's a real job. He's a, for the past three and a half years almost. He's been the morning talk host, morning host on uh, the conservative talk station in Manhattan. So he he and he so which means he has to go to bed like at seven thirty at night. So he doesn't get around, and he's also uh, raising a bunch of kids. Okay? Right. So, um, he does. You know, unfortunately, we don't get to see each other nearly as much uh, as a as we used to. But uh, but as, as I, I would like, and I think that Joe would like, we we always talk about it. But it's so hard to make it happen. Uh, but yes, I, I am still in pretty regular contact with Joe. Absolutely. Now, now you're a guy who covered Atlantic City for a long time, and. What happened in Atlantic City? Like you as a writer and as a journalist, because you've written serious, serious, besides entertainment, you've written serious stuff. I mean, not entertainment, serious, but, uh, uh, the critical writing for a right. collapse of a, a garage. What right. is you as a writer and a person who probably knows the pulse of Atlantic City better than really anybody, what do you think happened to Atlantic City? Because when, like, when I was, I was for a few years ago, I would come back once a month before Joanne moved out here. And I would, it was always like, 
saddening. Like it seems like Atlantic City was going through a lot of problems. What do you think happened? As someone who knows well, that's that not city, what I, think. I mean, it's it's what I know, and I don't mean to say that as as if I'm you know it all, but it's 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 you know it's empirical fact. Okay, so the lifeblood of Atlantic City from the from the day the doors opened at Resorts International, which is now just Resorts, uh, in 1978, May of 78, to uh, the end of 2005 early 2006, the true lifeblood of um, Atlantic City were senior citizens who would ride the buses by the millions to from 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 Philadelphia, from Cherry Hill, from North Jersey, from uh, Tom's River area like that, and but especially from Philadelphia and from North Jersey. And then in 2006, casinos started showing up in Pennsylvania, in southeastern Pennsylvania. Uh, the Sands in Bethlehem, which which took away a ton of business from uh, North Jersey, because it's a lot easier and cheaper. It's an hour quicker to get from Essex County, which is Newark and that area, to uh, to Bethlehem, PA. It's it's an hour and a half ride by bus, as opposed to two and a half hours to Atlantic City. And here's the thing: Atlantic City has always prided itself, in, you know, with amenities, just like Vegas, you know. But but those senior citizens who really paid the bills in Atlantic City, they they would ride the bus first for companionship. I found that out once when I did a story on riding the bus with senior citizens. A lot of it was social. It got, it gets, it got them out of the house and with a group of people, like regulars, because they'd ride the same bus once a week, once a month, so it became sort of a family of, of sorts. But they also did it to play this uh, usually a slot machine. And didn't matter. I mean, that was why they went. So, so you know, senior citizens never cared. They, you know, they weren't there for two hundred dollar uh, facials at, at a spa, at a casino spa. They didn't they didn't go to, to Bobby Flay and, and Wolfgang Puck's restaurants. They didn't go to the hottest new dance clubs. But all they wanted to do was play a machine. And all of a sudden, and I always talk about uh, uh, Bubba and Zeta, which of course you know Yiddish for grandma and grandpa who would live in northeast Philadelphia, who once a month, twice a month, would hop a bus an hour, 15, hour and a half to Atlantic City and come home. All of a sudden, a place called Parks opens up in Ben Salem, basically right across the city line from, from northeast Philadelphia. Well, they don't, why would you, for the same slot machine, why would you ride on a bus for an hour and a half when you can you know, get there in 15 minutes or 20 minutes to that same slot machine? And that essentially is the bit. There are other reasons, but basically, it's called convenience gaming. Casinos opened up that were geographically more convenient for the, the biggest and most important segment of gambler to to go to. It was just easier. It's easier for grandma and grandpa to, to, to you know take that fifteen or twenty minute ride, you know, either by bus or or, or um, you know somebody drives them or they still drive rather than get on a bus. And ride an hour and a half to Atlantic City from Northeast Philly, and that's you know I mean again there there are other factors, but those that's pretty much it. Does it make you sad? I mean, because you oh, were around God. in the heyday. I mean, it must be one of those things like you're like, holy oh. crap! I remember when this opened. I remember when the casinos opened. I remember yep. you know going down in the beginning and from Stockton we would try to go and you know and we would go to yep. play. Yeah. Um, it, it is it is incredibly sad for me to go when I remember you know just what it was like and I mean there's you know there's uh, the, the kind of shows there was I think it was the, the, the fall of 2005 or 2006 like in the space of like three weeks Barbara Streisand and the Rolling Stones and uh, 
like a, a Neil Diamond and and at least one other big Madonna maybe they like they all played Atlantic City. They don't get the headliners like they used to. There's no. I used to love the, the like the variety shows, the production shows. They they don't do those anymore. I mean it, it's and and you go down there even in the middle of summer and it's yeah there are people there but not not like there should be and not like there once was and it, yeah it, it's heartbreaking. It, it really is. And we've seen places like the Taj Mahal and and uh, the Atlantic Club, which used to be the Atlantic City Hilton, which began life as Steve Wynn's Gold Nugget, to see them physically deteriorate in front of my eyes. You know, to see paint, peeling paint and, and uh, you know, holes in carpets was really, it, yeah, it absolutely is, was very sad. And, you know, it looks like maybe things have bottomed out. And I don't know if they're ever going to, to return to those glory days, but I think things seem to get, there's, there's been some announcements of maybe a half a billion, maybe more in investments in the last just a month or so. That's good. I mean, because it's that's something where, I mean, you know, we, we, we I went there as a kid when it was, you know, I remember going on, on, a, on a ride on the boardwalk called the Orient Express, and it scared me because it would slam through these dar, <laughs> was doors. That million, was that Million Dollar Pier or Central Pier? I'm not it's sure. I was so pier. little. But, <laughs> so, I think it was Million Dollar Pier. So, so you, you wrote, you're writing for the Courier Post for all this time. Now, how did the Daily News job come up, and, and was it hard for you to leave the Courier because you were the Courier? I mean, you know, I mean, in all honesty, you know, when you think of entertainment and people, you know, when someone writes for 23 years, it's like, you know, like Stu Bykovsky had the call. I don't, I don't even know if he's still alive. I remember. He, yeah, he, no, he's still, he's still, still with us. He put, a, he, put a, yeah. he put a quote when I did stand-up comedy in his little quote section, and I was so happy. It was like, oh, my God, Stu Bykovsky put a quote, you know. But what, how did the carry, I mean, what, how did the Daily News job open come? How did that all? Okay, so um, in 2001, I think, 2000, 2001, we got a new publisher, a gentleman named Mark Frisbee who, for reasons to this day I don't quite understand, was a big fan of mine. And the publisher of the newspaper is the CEO. And um, he was just he, he was just very nice to me, always personally. Uh, his door was always open to me, which is usually not the way it works in newspapers. Reporters generally don't have carte blanche just to walk into the publisher's office and sit down and start chatting. Um, but he, said he just liked me. And in 2005, when a guy named Brian Tierney bought the Inquirer and Daily News, his first hire was Mark Frisbee, the Courier Post publisher, to become the vice president of operations and the publisher of the Daily News. And Mark said, you know, you got to come over to the Daily News. And that was as simple as that. The boss said, I want this guy hired, and they hired me. <laughs> I wish it was more dramatic, <laughs> but that was it. You know, again, right place, right time. Uh, Mark, I said, was just he was always very, very nice to me and did, did me some real solid things that publishers don't usually do for rank file reporters personally. And when he again, when he got hired at Daily News, he wanted me to, to work with to come with him. And it took a while; it took about a year between the time actually it took over two years. From the time that he went over there and the time I actually started Daily News. But you got to understand that the Daily News was the only newspaper I ever wanted to write for. That was really why I got in, into journalism. I loved working for the Courier Post. I, no complaints. I mean, yes, I, 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 it, it made me somewhat of a celebrity in South Jersey uh, and all. And I had my face on five billboards at one point in 2004 and 2005. Um, and 
Uh, but I, but that's what I, I just wanted to write for the Daily News because it was a tabloid paper. You could have a lot of fun writing. You could you know, really use words. You didn't have to be serious all the time and, and, and structure. When I say structure, I mean kind of language you use. You know, I'll give you one quick example. When um, about 2010 or so, Scores, the Gentleman's Club out of New York, opened up at the Taj Mahal in Atlantic City, and it was the first strip club to open inside an Atlantic City casino. So my lead, which is always the lead, is the first paragraph of, of, a, of a news story. My lead was, you know, for viewers of Boardwalk Empire are well aware that Atlantic City and sex have gone um hand in hand. Nice. Or hand in, oh, what it was, it was hand in um hand. That's what it was. Hand in um hand, you know, for, 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 for decades, you know, for almost a century, yeah, for a century, whatever. And the Daily News is one of the few newspapers in the country that would have printed that. The Courier Post would have never allowed that lead to go through. So, and, and to answer your question, was it tough to leave the Courier? You know, I, I, I thought that leaving the day that I, I gave my notice to the Courier, especially to go to the Daily News, would be maybe one of the great days of my life. But no, it actually turned out to be one of the worst days of my life. Because, you know, I, I got there in my 20s and I left in my 50s. I mean that that was my home, and, and I didn't, you know, it it was tough. I it, it was not a pleasant experience for me. I mean, you know, it was it was very sad, but I don't regret it. That's for sure. What was it like when the? Because you always said you always wanted to write for the Daily News. What was it like that first time you? Oh my God! You opened uh, up? I, that's a great question. No one's ever asked me that. And thank you because it 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 just was the culmination of. Let's see, in two thousand eight, I had been writing. Not, you know, I mean, I, since 74, so what's that, uh, 34 years at that point? Yeah, I'm sorry if you hear my dog talking. Right. Let, 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 uh, let the dog in. Let the dog in. Hold on. You know what? I'll open the door. Maybe he'll just shut up if, I, if he comes in. There you go. Hey, this is Bowie. <laughs> hey, Bowie. Uh, yeah. Um, and to, to finally have gotten that byline. And what made it even better was I was hired, even though I wound up doing a lot of other things, including the last three years as the theater critic there, I was hired pretty specifically to, to, uh, to cover Atlantic City for the Daily News. So my first column, which was an interview with uh, Kevin Costner, who was, uh, he had a band that he was bringing to the House of Blues at uh, the old showboat. Um, that not only was it great to see, you know, my picture and, and a column in the Daily News, but they actually, you know, teased it on the front page. Is it like, you know, new casino column, Chuck Darrow, something like that. Uh, so that, you know, to, 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 to see a column of mine promoted on the front page of the Daily News, yeah, it was pretty much, it was the highlight of my journalistic career, I would suppose. Certainly on a personal level in terms of my goals in life, because that was really the only goal I had was to write for the Daily News. Now, so it was, yeah, it was pretty amazing. Now you do you do a lot of radio stuff. Now, when did you start branching into different radio stuff? I read also you had a you had a ES you were on ESPN about poker or something like that or. Well, yeah. What I mean, I have been, I love radio. I'm not going to do the old face for radio joke because that's not even funny anymore. But I've always really radio has really always been my favorite medium. I just think it's 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 just a cool thing. You know, I like to think I kind of have the gift of gab and I'm pretty good at it. So. I, I had been a guest through, I mean, starting in the or in the 70s when I was still at, at, the, at Temple News, I was asked to be on the radio occasionally, just, you know, once in a while be a guest. And then in ni- late 98, or spring, spring of 98, I was actually asked, short version, um, to, to host a, um, to fill and do a fill-in on old, the old WWDB-FM, 
Okay. Remember Earl Homer? Yeah. Yeah, that station. And I did that for a while as a fill-in, and then I went. I wound up going to WIP, the you know the big sports station in town, uh, and I was a regular fill-in over always overnights though. Never never made the big time, but um, I was good about a year and a half, two years as a regular uh, fill-in. Um, on I, I, my first my first gig on WIP was spending two weeks filling in for our our friend Big Daddy Graham. I'm sure okay. you're you know Big Daddy. Okay. Um, and uh, from there, I just uh, I, I did you know, I, I and then in 2000, fall of, of 2005, 950 WPN went from kind of a middle of the road music and news station to a second sports talk station. They were affiliated with ESPN, ESPN Radio, and I just pitched them an idea. This is when poker. I'm a huge poker player. I love playing poker. And that's my other fantasy in life to win the world, or at least even play in the in the World Series in Vegas. But um, I just said, you know, hey, if you're looking for programming, poker is really big now. I have contacts at the casinos. I think the casinos might, you know, some provide advertising support. And and well, what would you think about doing a, a weekly show about poker? And they yeah, and they bought it, and they made more money on it than I did. That's for sure. Well, there you go. <laughs> now, now, what's the show you're doing now? I know. I think Kevin Bacon and his brother were just on. I believe. Yeah, they, they were just on the Bacon Brothers. Kevin and his and his big brother Michael have a, a band that they've been touring now for twenty years. And they're coming to the area next week, so I had them on. It's called That Showbiz. Uh, it is it airs uh, weekly Tuesdays, three p.m. East on uh, well, it's WWDVAM in Philly. But anyone listening outside of the Philly region can can tune in on uh, iTunes and uh, TuneIn Radio and iHeart Radio. Uh, also, www.dbam.com, and it's, the podcasts are there at, at www.dbam.com. It's essential. The one thing that always puzzled me in my 40-plus years of, of writing about entertainment is in the Philadelphia market, there was never, and really there was one, in the past 40-plus years, there has only been one show that was sort of dedicated to entertainment, even though how many you know billions of dollars are spent in this region on concert tickets, on on theater tickets. There's 50-plus professional theater companies in the Philly region. Uh, forget about movies, you know. And it just bothered me. and just thought it was so weird there was never any radio to, to you know, to, to cover all that. So uh, when I got laid off at the Daily News at the end of December 15th, it wasn't personal. It was a, a budget cut, and I was one of 17, 25% of the staff got laid off, and it was just uh, seniority because it's a union shop, and I wasn't there long enough to keep my job. And it gave me a chance to, to do something I always wanted to do, which was essentially a, a newspaper entertainment section on the air, on radio. So I have, I have a group of regular contributors who call in each week, talk about movies, theater, dining out, which is huge entertainment these days, leisure time activity, as you sure know. And then I also, like, like a newspaper, I also have a feature each week. And that is a celebrity interview. Not always a real big celebrity, but a, a, an interview, a guest interview. And I've been fortunate, I guess, when you're this good looking, the sad things like this happen. But I know. I've had uh, Trevor Noah, Alice Cooper, David Crosby, Chaz Palminteri, uh, Penn Jillette, uh, Piscopo, of course. Now, a couple of them are, are personal friendships. I, I should mention Penn Jillette I've known since the, uh, the, the late 1970s, I think, 79. And uh, he's one of my favorite celebrities, and I, can, I have personal, you know, I can get right to him if I need him and ask him, you know, I asked him to be on the show, because uh, he had just published a book about losing 100 pounds. But um, Kristen Chenoweth, I, I've had on, 
Bill Engvall, Barry Wilson from the Supremes. Uh, I have Tony Danza next week, actually, <laughs> speaking of Tony Danza. And it's just something that I, I love doing radio, and I think that there was, you know, that, that it fills a void in, in the Philly area. How long do your interviews last when you get someone on, and how do you approach a lot of them? Well, I mean, they're, they're all, all, almost always based on a project, on a, you know, on an upcoming gig or a book, something like that. Uh, the interviews run generally 10 to 20 minutes, depending on, on A, who they are and what they have to say. Uh, obviously, I'm going to give a David Crosby more time than I, I gave Peggy King, who is, uh, was a pop singer from the 50s, who was still at age 87, is still out there gigging, which is amazing. But um, it's, yeah, I, don't, I think the longest, longest actually, I think the, the longest segment has probably been 17, 18 minutes plus introduction, plus before I do my, my introduction each week, I'll play, if, if it's appropriate or applicable, I'll play a, a musical clip or a comedy clip. You know, Dice Clay, I played, I was able to find, you know, a minute of, of usable Dice Clay material, right. you know, like that. And it, it's fun, and it's, it keeps me, you know, keeps my hand in it. And interviewing celebrities, and they, they seem to generally enjoy it. I'm, I'm not a gotcha. I've never been a, a gotcha guy, but I do try to ask questions that most people wouldn't ask. I do try to zig when, when most people would zag and ask them about things that they generally maybe aren't asked about, If when, again, when applicable. Now, now, when you got laid off the Daily News, is that what you said? Are you done with writing, or, or do you, are you still done? No, no, not at all. I, I freelance for... A couple of magazines. I, I have a regular column. It's only six times a year in the because uh, it's only published six times a year for the South Jersey AAA membership magazine. I do a, a, a casino column called Rambling and Gambling, uh, so people can get in their cars and drive to you know various casinos out of the Atlantic City Philly area. Um, I've done some freelancing for a magazine published by the Star Ledger in up North Jersey called Inside Jersey Magazine. Uh, I free, I've done several a number of articles for SJ Magazine here in South Jersey, uh, and just in the end of January, I started writing an original uh, casino column, a casino column, entertainment original, a weekly, sorry, a weekly entertainment column called like the radio show that showbiz for PhillyVoice.com, which is a major a major Philly news and info website. So you're still out there grinding, which is good. Now, yep. now, are you playing any music these days? Always. That's what, you know, people for years, I meet people and I tell them about that I play bass. And they go, it's interesting. You're a reporter and you also play bass. And I always have to go, and no, I'm a bass player, you know, who has to feed a family and pay rent. <laughs> you know, whatever. Um, uh, yes, I play in two bands. You can check us out on ReverbNation.com, one of the bands, the, the, the more important and the one that's closer to my heart because I co-write much of the music for the band called Nitrous with a Y, like laughing gas, N-Y-T-R-O-U-S. So you can go to Reverb, R-E-V-E-R-B-Nation.com slash uh, Nitrous Band, N-Y-T-R-O-U-S Band. And it's, it's original and original versions of cover tunes. We do a lot of covers, but we don't do them. Um, I played in another cover, in a cover band for 15 years called Nasty Habits, and we would clone the recordings. I mean, if I could play for you. I could play Black Magic Woman by Santana. You would think you were listening to Carlos Santana play, play guitar because we, we cloned every note. But in Nitrous, when we cover a tune, we try to change it as much as possible Ergo, we have uh, we, we used to do when we had a violin player a bluegrass version 
of girls just want to have fun and we currently do almost every gig we do a punk version of brain damage from uh dark side of the moon and so and so you gig in the south jersey area yeah, like Philly. Yeah, I'm moving yeah, back. Mostly, I'm, actually, more probably more over the bridge in Philly. Moving, yeah, we played some of the some of the, the fairly big music bars. I mean, we haven't done any real giant venues in Portland, but we played uh, like the Grape Room in Maniunk and uh, the Rick Rack down in the Italian Ville, Italian Village, Italian Market in South Philly. So uh, yeah, we're out there pretty regularly, a couple good, times a month. It's good to know because I'm, I'm moving back. Uh, well, you got to come see us. April 29th. I have to come see you guys. I also have to go see. Uh, one of those in-the-pocket shows, because Kenny Aaron Yeah, and David they, they are amazing. I've had David was in from the Hooters, who's kind of, you know, put whose idea this was to do the in-the-pocket thing, salute, you know, all the great music out of Philly with Philly players. Uh, I had him on the show last year before one of the, uh, the in-the-pocket gigs. So Great guy. He's a great guy. So, uh, yeah. yeah. So, so now, now you're on Twitter. What's your Twitter handle? It's just at Chuck Darrow, one word, uh, no, no underscores or anything like that. And you can follow me there uh, on Facebook. That's Showbiz Radio, all one word, no apostrophe, on Facebook. Uh, that's Showbiz Radio. And uh, that's pretty much it. I've, I've stayed away from Instagram. Although I am I am developing an app for cocaine users called Half a Gram. Yeah. So bye for that. We, we got to wrap <laughs> up soon. I got to know, are you still doing the centertainment? Well, we just, that's, that's, that's the newest wrinkle. Yes, we we're just starting that. Um, that is hopefully coming uh, coming to a bar near you or a casino near you. Um, it's called. We have two different events. Both they're both the same event, but one is for private events called Making Sense S C E N T S. The other is for for public uh, use, if you will, public events in bars and restaurants called Invent Your Scent. And essentially, are you familiar with the painting party? Yes. This. Okay, well, this is essentially the, a painting party, except instead of painting a picture of a bowl of fruit, everybody who comes to one of our events will leave with a one-ounce bottle of perfume that they've made themselves according to their specific tastes and preferences. Oh, so you will walk out with a one-of-a-kind perfume, your own personal scent, whether you're male or female. That's so awesome, that. dude. Hey, man, I, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm glad we got to record this. I'm glad, you know... Oh, well, thank you, Steve. Thank you so, so much. No problem. Uh, people, I'm you, flattered. I, you know, I saw your guest list. Then. Hey. Really? He wants to meet you? Hey, it's, oh, it's, hey, it's all good. Anyway, people follow him at Chuck Darrow and listen to his show. I know he posts. I saw it. Who was, he had bacon on. I saw it on his Twitter feed yesterday. So follow him at Chuck Darrow. C-H-U-C-K-D-A-R-R-O-W. Follow me on Twitter. It's at Cooper Talk. That's at Cooper Talk. Also, don't forget to my website, coopertalk.net. I have 590-something episodes up. You can email me, Cooper at coopertalk.net. You can do that. It all works out. My other website, stopthesalt.com. Remember when I had that health problem a few years ago? Well, I wrote a cookbook. It's 120 low-sodium recipes. Easy to make. No pictures to intimidate you because guys get intimidated. No long list of ingredients. So if you don't have cumin, don't worry. You don't need cumin. You can buy it on my website, stopthesalt.com, or you can buy it on Amazon. People can buy it on Amazon, but if you buy it on stopthesalt.com, I make more money. Also, uh, my new company is uh, Cooper Talk Public Relations, and uh, my two clients right now are the talented drummer of Jason Aldean and highly sought after motivational speaker Rich Redmond and headlining touring national comic named Jimmy Delaballa. So if you want to hit them up, once again, Cooper at coopertalk.net. So don't remember, look up Chuck Darrow, Google him, read some of his yeah. articles, follow me on Twitter at Cooper Talk, email me, Cooper at coopertalk.net. I'm not Steve Cooper, I'm only as hip as my guests. 
Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next week.